commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is going to be fun. We're going to have a fun time. If you're not sitting in a fun way, then move. If you don't have a fun drink, that time will come. <laughs> Favorite tasty Passover beverage. So first off... So are you going to have little umbrellas? <laughs> That's a fun drink. <laughs> oh. So to everyone, a Chag Sameach. And today is Shabbos Chol Hamoed, the Sabbath of, uh, well actually what is it, the, the profane day of the week or something is actually what it's literally called. It's a bad translation. It's a common, the common festival days kind of thing. I know what it is, I was looking at the literal. Actually, profane is probably a bad in the same common. way that unclean is yeah. probably a bad Common. Common is much better. Yes. But this is... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's the I. Yeah. The yin and the yin. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this is the Sabbath. There's always, in Pesach, there's always a Sabbath. Always. Why? Because Pesach is a week long. It's got to have a Sabbath. Okay. So what we're going to talk about is the timing of the Master's Seder, his betrayal, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his death, his resurrection, the walk down to Emmaus, all that kind of stuff. Um, we're just going to discuss it. We have a little handout for you to look at the calendar. We're going to look at the scriptures, and I'm not going to teach this. So, um, Greg Upham and I hope Joshua Nunez are going to. Uh, help to bring out some theories so that you can now everybody take your right hand like this and make make sort of a V a little bit of a V almost a U good I like that well done Ken okay now turn it towards your face right now put it on your chin and go hmm okay that's what we're looking for today some hmm moments okay so my goal is that you will see some things in the Passover timing that you've never seen before, number one. Number two, that the Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua the, the Messiah, will be lifted up and glorified as we see how long before the foundations of the earth, the Holy One of Israel actually designed and then commanded His people to keep these dates scrupulously for all time. <coughs> And these will bring glory to him. Third, we'll, uh, we'll hear about a cool theory and see if you can't help to prove the theory or disprove the theory. You get master class points regardless of which one you uh, help to accomplish. I have 20 of these. I don't know how many there are of you. So if you take one per family, and if your family is wide, take two. And we'll take it from there. Not because the Passover week with all of the leaven. Yes, yes. 
problem wasn't the passenger week, it was the week before. before it's over. <laughs> Clean it out! Yeah, I know, I know. I was making my crazy. <laughs> uh, I am going to need one of those. They were like, this is fun, Mom. You can't use that. Check, check, check. It doesn't have a goal. It was great. We came downstairs and we had like two pies. We had to finish using all of them. That's right. Okay. The handout that you are getting has three pages. The first page. Ken, would you hand me that bowl right there, please? Thank you so much. Here is the crayon bowl. Always prepared. Um, the three three pages. The first page is a calendar beginning with the fourth of Nissan, right after Rosh Kodesh Nissan, which would be uh, um, three, two, one, the previous Thursday. And it walks through Shabbat Hagadol, which we just had, Big Sabbath, that's the one before Pesach. It then has some uh, items in red that tell us what happened during that week leading up to the Passover. We have Pesach itself, we have first fruits, which is Bikarim, and then we have the resurrection of the Lamb, and then um, the remainder of the week of Pesach. So it's color-coded, you can see the f seven days of Pesach. And then we have some appearances and uh, movement of the master we're going to look at. And finally, the calendar ends with Rosh Kodesh ER, which is the first of the month of ER. Okay? The second page is something that I've been working on for years and wanted to thank Joshua Nunez for finally uh, giving me the impetus and kicking the fanny to finish it. But if you look, if you guys look on that side, do you see my glasses on that side of the table? Hmm. Ah, glasses have arrived. Thank you, Johnny. Lick them. Yeah, lick them. Okay. So what we have here are the timing markers in the Word of God, beginning with the book of John and then interspersing the synoptic Gospels into the text. We have what happened moment by moment. So timing markers would be stuff like on that day, on the next day, then, immediately, and stuff like this. Or six days before the Passover, as we begin in John chapter 12 and verse 1. And then uh, all of the parallel passages have been listed there for you, so that you can see what happened on each day. So it shouldn't be open to discussion or argument any longer about what happened when, uh, as we have the proof before us here. But as you look through that, if you find anything that you find amiss, uh, please bring it to my attention. This is online for you on the Men of Torah resource page. And, uh, and we'll take it from there. Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means? Synchronous or parallel. Yeah, they're the parallel Gospels, right? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay? So what we're going to do is just walk through the graphic together and the scriptures. And... Uh, once we get all the way through it, we're not going to walk through every one of these verses. We're just going to walk through the graphic so you understand what happened. And then we're going to open it up to discussion. And uh, after the discussion kind of wanes a bit, then we'll have uh, Greg present us with a curious but amazingly cool theory that he would like to have some help proving. 
So if you look at the graphic, we see that on uh, six days before the Passover, if you count from Pesach, six boxes prior to it, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, on the 9th of Nisan, on Friday, it says that Yeshua came to Bethany, to the home of Simon the leper, and this is where Lazarus was. If you continue to read in the passages, you find out that they prepared him supper. Supper. Supper was prepared for him. Well, if he shows up on Friday, if anybody showed up to your house on Friday, and you make them supper, what meal is it you're giving them? It's Arab Shabbat meal. And when that meal begins, what day is it now? It's Shabbos. It's the Shabbat. So now, we have moved into Shabbat Haggadol, and it's the 10th of Nisan. What's supposed to happen on the 10th of Nisan according to the scriptures? Choose the lamb. We choose the lamb and take it where? In our own homes. To our homes. Was everybody a shepherd? Were most people shepherds? No. What do you got to do to get a lamb if you're not a shepherd? You got to buy one. And if you were wise in those days, you went to the temple to buy one so your lamb would had no chance of being rejected. You bring a Galilean lamb or something like that, and you know, they go, oh, what? What kind of, ah, we got the check in. Okay. <laughs> How are you going to buy a lamb on the 10th of Nissan in this particular year? It ain't going to happen, is it? Can't buy yourself. You cannot buy your lamb. Now, if you're a shepherd, you could select your lamb. If you were the cousin of a shepherd, you may be able to select your lamb. But if you're not a shepherd, and you don't know real well a shepherd, you've got to wait till the 11th. Ooh. One minor point, though. Yes, sir. We do see, in conjunction with this 10th of Nisan, or seem very close to it at least, the anointment by Mary. This was actually done on Erev Shabbat. You bet. So, it's costly. It costs a year's wages. Is this sort of, I'm making my lamb choice? Ooh, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> And so we know it was at dinner, or right after dinner, and it was on the 10th of Nisan that Mary broke the alabaster vial. And I like that. She yeah, made her choice. She's got a horse in this race. I like that. It's okay. a good horse. <laughs> so if we, uh, if we wait till the 11th of uh, Nisan, this is when the people would be fulfilling the scripture and buying their lambs. I poured a glass of water. Does anybody see where it might be? It is a glass. It's a glass glass. It's a, a glass of what? Uh, no, no, it's a, <laughs> it's a glass glass. Can you check on the study and see? Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. So I want to bring something to your attention now. When are the people supposed to select the land? The tenth of Nisan. But in this year, they didn't. Did they violate the scripture? No. What did they do? They established it. They kept the scripture. Why? Because Shabbat trumps that. Yes. They waited in order to honor Shabbat. This was actually taught as a command. That is not one. This is actually taught as a command. I wonder where my glasses are. Um, taught as a command in the scripture. What is the quintessential example of holding off on something important or commanded until after Shabbat? Building the tabernacle. Building the tabernacle, the Mishkan. That's exactly right. Right? Oh, thank you, son. Pardon me. 
And today we see this yeah, too with some things like, for example, um, Purim never falls on the Shabbat. You always postpone Purim so that you can do the things for Purim, but you can't do those on the Shabbat. Exactly. And the, the fast can't take place on, on Friday. The only fast that's allowed to take place on Shabbat is Yom, Yom Kippur. Good. So, so we see that there's not only biblical precedent, but historical precedent, precedent for putting stuff off because of Shabbat. Two things got put off on Shabbat Haggadol that year. One, we've already talked about, was the selection of the lambs. What's the other thing? Peter. Peter doesn't know. America. Traveling to Bethany. Traveling to Bethany? Yes, the master was traveling to Jerusalem. We know from earlier in the scriptures that the master was on his way. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He had an appointment there. An appointment with death. An appointment to provide us life. And he was going to get there and he was going to get there on time. But he entered the Shabbat. And the scripture is clear. On the next day, after dinner. The next day. Dinner was on Saturday. Dinner was on Friday evening. Erev Shabbat. On the next day, he traveled to Jerusalem. And that would have been 11 Nisan. Which is also when the people would be selecting their lambs. And this is known as what in the church today? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. How about that? Guess what? They got it, they got it right! Hamsa. Holy cow. Hamsa <laughs> Sunday. No. Okay, now we have, a, we have a very odd reference. If you look on page two, under 11 Nisan Sunday, you read everything about him approaching Jerusalem. He gets to the Mount of Olives. He sends his Tommy demon to the city to get a cult that no one else has ridden on. He gives him some really cool stuff. And I think, personally, he's talking about Johnny Mick. Johnny's got a little shop there selling guitars in Jerusalem. And he's got a cult out in front of his a cult out in front of his shop. And he already knows to be obedient. And I believe that Johnny's been told in a dream that some guys are gonna some guys are going to ask. Thank you. Some guys are going to ask for a cult. And he's already been clued in as to what the secret handshake is. <laughs> They're going to ask for a cult. And you ask him, what are you going to do with that? And they're going to say, the master has need for it. <laughs> and sure enough, that's exactly what happens. This guy lets his cult be taken, taken by guys presumably he doesn't even know. It's what they say that causes him to just give it up. The master has need for it. I find that curious. I think it speaks to the fact that this man had a relationship in some way with the master. But I'm speculating. So can we imagine like the Mission Impossible music playing in the background? Dun, dun, you know, dun, dun, sort of like some sort of pass off between <laughs> I love it. Now here's curious, back to 11 Nissan on your second page, under Sunday, you see the large, uh, you see first off that the master wept over Jerusalem, and then he came down on that cult. That's where they pull out, as, uh, as we've heard before, if you look at all of the uh, uh, passages together, John, Matthew, and Mark, you not only get the palm branches, but the, weefy, uh, the willow and the leafy branches, which come together and are... The Lulam. Ron Holiday. Yeah. <laughs> and believe it or not, some in the visible church 
commentators would tell you that the Jews got mixed up. The Jews got mixed up and waved the lulav thinking it was Sukkot. Now, for those of you who have been keeping the, the, the festivals for any length of time, is that even possible? Is that even possible? You've got to build a sukkah before you can wave the lulav. You've got to have Yom Kippur before you can build a sukkah. That's like having a seder in your sukkah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just, it just like sense. But but what it does do, in my opinion, is it I mean this what wasn't an accident. They knew exactly what they were doing. You bet right? they did. What were they doing? Well what were they proclaiming? That was that was no, something you would do on the uh, on the last week's code, if I'm not mistaken. It was part of the Hoshana Labah ceremony and it was blessed he who comes. Okay. So what this, in my view, what this does is it should show us this um, undeniable link between both festivals. They are opposite sides of the same coin, as it were. Amen. They're both seven-day festivals, um, and they both are intricately linked to the Messiah. You bet. Go ahead, Jonathan. And on, let's see, after Hoshana Rabbah, would be and that's when there's the, the custom of you actually take your your, your lulav and you beat, beat it. it to death. Exactly. And there you go. There you go. Yeah, I, I think that this kicks off for the remainder of our calendar an undeniable and unmistakable connection between what the people are seeing and what the master is doing. So I I, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Juliana. Shocked at Mark 11 11. You see, under Sunday 11 Nisan, Yeshua entered Jerusalem. He came to the temple. He looked around and went back to bed. He just kind of scoped it out, almost like, How am I going to plan this out? Went back to Bethany with the 12 since it was late. On Monday, you look at your calendar, you see this is where he cleansed the temple. On his way to the temple, his way to Jerusalem from Bethany, that's where you've got the story about the fig tree. Master's hungry, sees a fig tree, looks for figs. Oh, here's a tree that has borne no fruit. And it withered. And just a quick little comment here that's interesting. If I remember correctly, um, I love the fact that Shira Shirim, Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon is the Megillah during Passover. It's interesting that in Song of Solomon, if I remember correctly, there's a passage where they comment that this is the time. He, the master is calling out to the bride. You know, the winter is past, the spring has come, and the figs are ripening. Ah, so cool here comes the master, and he walks up, Looking for and figs. the figs are ripened. It, you know, <laughs> the, and the imagery there, of course, is the idea of like looking for fruit on people, not just on the tree, yeah. in the sense that the tree is supposed to be bearing fruit right now, and it's not. And it's, but I do kind of, I just, every time I can draw a link between the husband <laughs> character in Song of Solomon and the Messiah, it's so cool. Amen. Amen. Very good. Uh, we had a slight question about people bearing fruit since we're on the subject. Okay. I always came from the perspective that it was more like almost the ministry opportunities that God places in our lives. Like just the those things that come along that you can't make happen because I was thinking the fruit is up to God. Like the tree can't make itself produce fruit, but that comes from God. Mm -hmm. okay. And um, Greg saw it more as 
our obedience, like what we do is the fruit that we're bearing. Can it, is it both? Can it not be both? I, I mean, if you're bearing the fruits of righteousness, God will put opportunities in your path. And then you can practice the deeds of righteousness. You can't have one without the other. Right. Yeah. So if I think your point is, God just happens to have 50 people show up at your house. Yeah. And you get to practice hospitality. But wait. That can't happen unless you're already predisposed to practice hospitality. Mm -hmm. So I think they go together. Well, I I, I, but I, I, think I, I, I think I see what you're saying. The first point is... It is, it is a, it is especially in evangelical Christianity, it is almost necessary because there's so much about good works in the scriptures. It's almost necessary to make them accidental <clears throat> as opposed to intentional. Uh, that we, if you intentionally do something, you're somehow earning your way into God's favor. Mm. And that's bad. We don't want to do that. So it's all accidental. So uh, we, we talk about things as, uh, we talk about, uh, being kind and gracious or uh, loving one another. We use broad terms instead of specific commandments and specific actions that are easily identified. <clears throat> and it's one of the reasons why, you know, we talk about the, you know, the example where you see a young man lead an old lady across, an older lady, across the street, and everyone immediately, oh, look at that nice little Presbyterian boy. Oh, look at that little nice little Muslim boy, or whatever else. But it's only when he has tzitzit on that he go, oh, look, the nice Jewish boy. Yeah. And, and, I, and he's and, trying to earn his way to heaven. And, and clearly that, 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 there are, that the unrighteous do good deeds as well. But you describe them in, in broad terms. And I think that part of the problem is that when we give righteousness a broad definition instead of specifics, you know, which is pretty easy, like when you talk about keep the Sabbath or don't, you know, uh, when you do it in specifics, now it becomes very, very difficult for me to be, to be, uh, to blend in. <clears throat> or, and, and I believe, now I may be wrong, but I believe that traditional Christianity has always desired to blend in without acting like they were. Or while telling themselves that they ought not to. That's right. Well, in an effort to be attractive, usually. Right. Sure. Right. Draw people in. Yeah. They usually have a good motive, but. Isn't it interesting that um, one of the Levites' primary job, the priests, were to teach the people the difference between clean, clean and unclean, between holy and common. That was their job, to make sure the people knew that. I have found this Passover that that command and that constant drawing the line between the two seems to be done by the church as well in a sort of a counterfeit way in that we want to have that which is religious and that which is secular. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's anything I've learned over the past decade or so is my whole life is religious. There is no secular left. Everything I do is to walk in his steps in obedience out of love because of the grace that he has shown me and the favor which I have received. So, my work is just an outpouring of who I am and whose I am. There is no secular left. Whether I'm shooting shotguns with men of faith or I'm teaching people how to shoot shotguns with pagans, they're still doing it with a believer in Messiah. 
So there is no dichotomy there. But even while I'm doing things with pagans, in perhaps what the world would consider to be a secular thing, I'm still cognizant of what is holy, and what is common, and what is clean, and what is unclean, and what demonstrates obedience, and what demonstrates disobedience. There's the thought. Yes, in that you know, Lord taught from agriculture a lot and understanding in agriculture fruit can be green it can be very shriveled up it can be black you know, from exposure to frost or whatever it can be that succulent perfect awesome piece of fruit to eat so I look at the fruits of the spirit you know, kindness, love, patience whatever that person might not, or I might not be patient or kind or whatever, but the fruit might still be there, and it might just need to grow. It yeah. might be, need to be nurtured and fed or watered, whatever. Doesn't mean it's not there, but that it just has a lot of growing to do. Or it's not apparent yet. Correct. Good. But with the fig, with the fig, the so tree did not, not give right. what it was created for. In other words, its purpose was to create sure. the fig. And because it didn't do what it was created for, that Bam. was why it was worth worthy of being cursed. And and in the same way we talk about good works, you know, as being fruit. You know, I was always told it's how many people you win to the Lord. That's right. It's like, you know. uh, but but it's what we were created for. And what we were created for was that we uh, love God and obey Him. That's what we were created for. And to go back to your point about um, God making the fruit and creating the fruit, it says in Ephesians that these are good works which God has before ordained that we would walk in them. In other words, we are the ones who, in our minds and perspective, choose to do them. But it's like that thing we pray in the Modim of the rabbis. It says, we thank you for enabling us to thank you. In other words, we're doing it, but it's God who's giving us the ability and the opportunity to and do it. And the design, right. You and, yes, and the fact that it's a fig tree, there's two things that come to mind. First off is... Uh, each man under his grapevine, each man under his fig tree is Good. becoming uh, ex exactly for uh, eventually everyone will be able to study Torah and have sustenance in, in that regard under their own fig tree and, and this is a picture of what time? of the messianic age, the messianic age. so once right. again we've got to tie back right. to what he's doing right. and what should be on their mind and the fact that in Ganidan when uh Adam and Chava made coverings, it was from fig leaves, and if you've been in Israel, you know that figs will bloom and, and will have the most leaves during, uh, during Yom Kippur. So you have the, the connection between atonement and, 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 and having to study the Torah in order to, to see the atonement covering, and then if you're not doing that, you're not producing the leaves, you're not producing the fruit, and that's what Yeshua saw. For, for those that weren't, uh, you know, practicing for the Messianic era by studying the Torah to see the atonement. That's what the fig trees, you know, uh, have a jolly connection to. Then they didn't have the fruit, and the, and that's and thus they uh, will wither and die. So if you see the atonement through Messiah as the fig tree when he was there when he came, then you you will always have you will be a tree planted by the streams good, of the water. Good, 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 outstanding. If you're behind me and you need to talk or want to talk, you're probably going to have to grunt or something. Yes. It's not related specifically to the fig tree, but to Gloria's comment about the fruit, uh, 
actually read two tour portions with the kids this morning on Kedoshim where it speaks specifically of Orlah. It's sort of the three years that you plant fruit in the land, you're not to eat it in the fourth year, you're to eat it in the presence of Hashem in the fifth year, then you can eat it wherever you are. It kind of parallels kind of uh, with the fact that, that it's a process. Good, good. Yes, just to pick up on uh, one comment that Jonathan made, throughout scripture, trees are used to represent man. Right. And, right. And, and yes. Psalm, uh, Psalm 1, which he just referred to, um, is a good example. So the, Zad, the Zadik is that tree planted by you know the rivers of water. He's that palm tree, you know, uh, and and so a righteous man, a Zadik, is going to, he's righteous because he has fruit. If he doesn't have fruit, then is he righteous? Mm. And so that is why Yeshua said, we know them by their yes. fruits. fruits. Good, I like that. Yes, sir. To bounce off that whole Psalm, one thing again, um, just before he shall be planted by the rivers of water, um, it talks about uh, he that bringing forth his, his fruit in his season well, you know, we see what time of year it is now, and, and he's walking up to the fig tree. It's in season, no fruit. Good, good. Hey, we're doing the normal two verses for 40 minutes. All right. So, uh, so on Monday, we see him seeing the fig tree, he curses it. He enters the temple, drives out those who were buying and selling, and then goes back to Bethany. Which is removing Hametz from his house. Wow. I like that. That is kind of cool. You catch that? He's removing the Hametz from his house. And then you you got him making the the whip, which kind of almost gets back to the idea of him going around with the feather, you know, around the house. That's what, so, so we ought to use a whip instead of My house shall be a house really work of prayer. He does call it his house. I got okay. you. Okay. Me first? You first. Well, and if you have a Maxor uh, for Pesach, in the first day during Shacharit, there's an, a big adage where you actually say, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That's Multiple right. times. Yep. The first day of Pesach. Yep. Good, good. And... I think it talks about the wick there, too. Anyway. <laughs> Going back to Psalm 1, uh, I think an important point is that before we get to the point of being this tree that bears good fruit and having uh, the Pesach, and is that you have to first, is praiseworthy as a man who walked not in the counsel of the wicked, yes. and stood not in the path of the sinful, and sat not in the session of scorn of scorners, but his desires in the Torah of Hashem, and in his Torah he meditates day and night, and so forth, you get to the tree. I think that is key. It's not just that we are who we are, we know who he is, we know who we are in him, but that we have willfully chosen, just like you can choose to willfully sin, that we've willfully chosen to withstand all that which is evil, either walking with it, standing with it, or completely now comfortable with it, sitting yeah, in its presence, right. but cleaning out the house. I would go one step further and say, not only have you shunned the world and so forth, but also, to your point, you have poured into you his word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, 
Many people quote Jacob, James, that says, resist the evil one and he will flee. But don't realize that that verse starts off with, submit yourself to the Lord. Resist the evil one and he will flee. And so before getting to that point, we have to be submitted. So. Good. I had a comment. Sure. A comment. Um, on the feather, I never thought of this before, but it sort of made sense in cleaning out your own house. I never understood that tradition. And, uh, you know, this is like our second cycle, our family going through the Moedim. And it makes sense because we're supposed to speak the truth in love. So it's the gentleness of that feather sure. and purging all of the leaven out of your home. Good. And if you don't, I got a wooden spoon for you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we move on. <laughs> Sorry, it's the soft and the hard. <laughs> Good. You know, Daddy, just from a logistical perspective, having lived in Israel for a very short amount of time, as I did, it makes a whole lot of sense to me that each of these. Um, days are seem to end with that he went back to Bethany. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about the feast, everybody's there for the feast, so this, the city is probably full. <coughs> now when I was there, of course, I was blessed to have an apartment in Jerusalem, which was great. But like, you know, in Jonathan, they may come to Jerusalem for the day, but then they would go back to their place outside of Jerusalem for to spend the night. And so you can see that really specifically <laughs> yeah. here for, um, for Yeshua. He would come into the Jerusalem because that's where, that's where he's working, that's where his job is. And then you go back out to Bethany. Good. And then so, was is, I mean, it was just a couple miles outside. Yeah, Jerusalem. it wasn't for a couple miles. And then getting back to the point we made earlier about Mary choosing her lamb, the lamb was supposed to be brought into the house. Now, Yeshua is going to the temple each day, which is in a sense coming into the house. And we see the imagery there. But going back to the idea of going back to Bethany, one almost has to think that also, in a sense, is sort of the house that the lamb has been brought into. It's almost like Messiah, in his wisdom, manages to combine the uh, requirements of a normal Pesach year where Shabbat doesn't fall on the 10th of Nisan, and this year where the Shabbat does fall, because he's going into God's house each day as the lamb would be brought into the house on, on the 11th that year. But he also happens to have a house that he's going to each night, yep. which is where he started in the tent. That's cool. Mm -hmm. It's like he's he is a lamb in a house, and he's also an owner of a house. Yes. So, Can you imagine yes. the actual lamb at Mary's house? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And she was yeah. like, "It's okay, buddy. I got you covered. <laughs> We're in this together, man. <laughs> I, I feel your pain." Yeah. yeah. Okay. We move on to Tuesday, the 13th of Nisan, on your uh, calendar. You see that uh, the Master's question. Uh, I, I saw for the first time this year that all of the questioning that is done of the Master happens on a single day. And I saw some great phrases there. Now first, if you'll notice back on your uh, second page there under Tuesday, this is uh, um, noted, uh, the timing marker here is that Passover and unleavened bread are two days away. They came to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders, that's your first set of folks that are going to ask him questions. And they ask him, by whose authority are you doing all this? I mean, you just cleaned everything out yesterday, and you've, you've overturned all these tables. So who you do, you know, what are you doing this for? By whose authority? That's interesting. He gives them a great response. And uh, his response, of course, when asked a great question, your response to, should be to ask an even better question, right? <laughs> all right, so by whose authority was Yochanan Hamakvil baptizing. And they're, they're like dumbfounded. Well, gosh, I don't know what we should say there. All right. 
Then, same day, the Pharisees, Talmudim, and the Herodians ask Yeshua if it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Wow. Another great question. And he has a great question. Got a coin? Whose picture's on it? Good. And then, on that day, the very next one, some Sadducees came to Yeshua. Now we've covered the bulk of those religious leaders that may have been against him. That day, some Sadducees came to Yeshua and questioned about this woman. She's married to this guy, got no kids, guy dies. So the Leverite thing takes over, and she marries the, his brother. He dies. She marries the next brother. He dies. The next brother. He dies. The next brother. He dies. Holy cow. Seven, seven husbands. He dies. Still no kids. So in, in the resurrection, which, uh, which, which one is she going to be married to? And he slams them, saying that uh, they don't understand. And thinking about this and going back to the idea of the lamb, um, the religious authorities, as you pointed out, are the ones who are investigating him. In the same sense that the religious authorities were ultimately, in a sense, the ones responsible for making sure that the lamb was acceptable to be a Pesach offering. Exactly right. This exactly. is the day he got his kosher seal. He did. That's exactly right. Because uh, one more line, and then I'll, I'll show you. Um, when the Pharisees heard Yeshua's response to the Sadducees, I think that's pretty cool. Do you, know what that, do you know what that teaches you? Not that they're in it together necessarily, but he's really being watched. He's talking to him, but he's listening in. He mentions it to him, but she heard what he said. So everybody's going here. So the Pharisees heard Yeshua's response to the Sadducees, and one of the lawyers asks him what the greatest commandment is. It's a beautiful story. I hope you'll turn to it and read it when you get home today or maybe uh, for the remainder of, of Pesach. Um, but he gives an answer, and you know the answer he gave. I just think that the answer from this lawyer back to the master is extraordinary. He tells the Savior of the world, he tells the written Torah, the living Torah, that he has answered well. I'm just figuring the master did not respond the way I would. <laughs> oh, you think? <laughs> but I think also that's kind of cool because you see, I have to say, slam dunking one's theological opponents seems to win you some friends because up until this point, the Pharisees seemed to be almost a little antagonistic towards Yeshua. Yeah. Then he like totally trashes the Sadducees' best argument against the resurrection. Oh yeah. Then follows it up with a really intense insult. You do not understand the power of God, you know. <laughs> then the Pharisees are like, all right. He's on our side. Yeah, baby. Now, by this time, let's make sure we understand. There's a certain bunch of Pharisees that have not committed themselves to him. But you got a whole boatload of them that have. Yeah. Yeah. To the point where two of them don't care what anybody else thinks, and they bury them. Right. That's, that's extraordinary. Because right. the visible church will tell you that the Pharisees were totally against the master. That could not be further from the truth. And your response should be to ask their good question, please follow up with a better question. Who buried him? Yes, sir. Uh, and, and along those lines, when we read about the whole trial night, we see it's the Pharisees that recognize that this is an illegal trial, and they walk out. 
So I mean, this this is part of the setup here, and and one of the things that we see later on in the book of Acts is while how many not only among the chief priests, but how many of the Pharisee sect that we see in Acts Acts chapter twenty one and twenty two that are actually going along with the way, and this is probably the stage that's been set. We've seen a certain, not a lot, but some animosity up until this point, and we don't see any after this. That's true. Another good point on, on that is to, to remind you that if you're reading the Gospel accounts and you're looking for the sounds, you're looking for the picture, you can see the text, you'll notice that the Master is in the Galilee. They're cutting across a field. And his Talmudim are picking the heads of grain and they're eating it. Who is it that says, hey, how come your Talmudim are doing stuff that goes against what the elders said? Who's asking him that? The Pharisees. Oh, wait a minute. We're in the Galilee. There are no Pharisees in the Galilee. They're in Jerusalem. What are they doing in the Galilee? They're following, they're following the Master. They're following the Master. So don't buy into this thing that the Pharisees were totally against him. We see that, that turning and to the point where we get to this, this uh, watershed event that stops it completely. You bet. The other important historical point here is that of, of the two camps of Pharisees, Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai, at this point in time, Beit Shammai it controls the 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 Bedouins and the and they are setting the halakha. You bet. And we know that that uh, some of their traditions, particularly as it pertains to interaction with Gentiles mm -hmm. and other things, uh, are what Yeshua and then later some of the other disciples took a yes. real issue. You bet. Absolutely. So, uh, so I would I would speculate that probably a not all, but probably more of the Pharisees of Beit Hillel uh, would have been right would have had less of an issue with Yeshua Absolutely. than Beit Shemai. Absolutely. So. And I, do, I mean, you have to point out that we come up very soon on Messiah's um, <coughs> lambasting of the hypocrites that were within even the Pharisaic sect. So, and the Pharisees themselves would recognize that they were members of their own group, just as any group ultimately has members sure. in it who are hypocritical, who do things badly. Um, and the Pharisees themselves later, I believe in the, the Talmud, they have Talmud, seven bad, seven types of Pharisees. They'll actually comment on Five some of the same bad. issues. So, yeah. there were some Pharisees that were sketchy. But at the same time, the idea that they were all is just absolutely unfounded in Scripture. That's exactly right. Uh, we're we're going to get into that some more. Um, uh, in fact, uh, to, to Greg's point, as we look at on our calendar, Monday the eight, uh, Sunday the 18th, do you see that? It's known in the visible church as the road to Emmaus. You're familiar with this. We're going to talk about Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai because we have, we have in spades right here, and the visible church is completely blind to it. I remember when Rick asked us some years ago, have you ever heard of the 18 measures? And we said, no. And he goes, wow, that's too bad. How are you possibly going to understand the book of Galatians? <laughs> what? <coughs> so the whole concept of Beit Halal and Beit Shammai and the fight that they had and the whole deal. We're going to see that on the road to Emmaus in just a minute, but I don't want to jump ahead. Let's, let's keep going through the text. Um, back on 13 Nisan Tuesday, about halfway down, from that day on, no one dared 
ask him <laughs> another question. Talk about a slam dunk. He is kosher. He is a kosher lamb for Passover. He has been examined. He has been uh, weighed in the balance, and he has not been found wanting. That's right. a hexer seal. I That's right. <laughs> All right, so now Yeshua leaves the temple. This is where uh, some of the disciples and Talmudim ask him, Wow, have you, have you really noticed this temple? I mean, how cool is this with these stones? Unbelievable place. Big, tall, shiny, that whole deal. And that's where he makes a statement about, You tear this temple down, there won't be one stone left upon another. Three days, the whole thing. Then Yeshua is uh, sitting on the Mount of Olives. His Talmudim come to him privately. They want to know about this. They ask him three specific questions. We're not going to get into that now. But that's where you're talking in uh, Luke uh, 21, Matthew 24. You've got long chapters about when is the temple going to be destroyed? When's, what's going to be the, the sign of your coming? And what's going to be the, when's, when is the end of the age? They, he asked them, they ask him three specific and definitive different questions. And we can't just all lump them all together and say, well, this all happens at the same time. And here's a couple of parables and a couple of stories about some virgins and some oil and some, some folks outside grinding mil, uh, or milling wheat or whatever it may be. It's a big deal. So that's when that happened. When he's finished speaking, he says, after two days, the Passover is coming. We've got another timing marker. And the Son of Man is to be crucified. I want you to notice with the blue titles to some of these pages, some of these paragraphs, that these timing markers differ. Sometimes the Passover is the 15th. Sometimes it's referred to as the 14th because it actually starts that evening. Sometimes it's the day of preparation and so forth. So you need to check all these out. But if you put it all together, I think you'll find that this is consistent. When the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, same thing. Chief priests and scribes are seeking how to see, how to seize him by stealth. Wait, chief priests and scribes? Hmm. That's the temple guys. That's not the Pharisees. All the people would get up early in the morning to come into the temple to listen to him. So we've got a day here, Tuesday, where he has been questioned. But this is now the second day he's been in the temple, and he's evidently teaching the people. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And then finally we get to Tuesday night. This is the first day of Unleavened Bread, when the lamb's being sacrificed before the Feast of Passover. That starts at sundown on Tuesday, and goes all the way to sundown on Wednesday. So, Jerry, can I ask a question? Yeah. I'm sorry to take you back. I understand the scribes, they were... They were Okay, not being the Pharisees, explain the chief priests. Uh, the chief priests were the, uh, were the Sadducees, the Herodians. Uh, these are the guys that are in charge of the temple, determine who's going to do what, whether or not your lamb is kosher. They're the ones that would allow people to buy and sell and set up uh, a marketplace within the temple itself. Okay, and Pharisees, how they differ from the Pharisees. I, I just always thought they were part of it, so I appreciate you explaining. Yeah. Um, what was it? Uh, I, I, uh, was, was there another question? Well, you said they weren't Pharisees. That's correct. Okay, so um, the Pharisees were more. Pharisees the Pharisees, Pharisees are, are religious Sadducees, and the and the chief priests were political. But the weird thing is, the Pharisees Sadducees are Sadducees. I thought they were. No, 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 no. no. The okay. Sadducees were in the temple, but they got most of their position, wealth, prestige, whatever, from the Romans. They sold out. The Pharisees were more amongst the common people. They're not priests, mostly. Oh, they're not. No, but. No. 
but they're actually more religious, ironically enough. So they were, they, the, the people looked to the Pharisees for teaching. I mean, they were they were the, the teachers of the law. John, yeah. John, yeah, uh, John three, Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes to him at night. He's a Pharisee. He says to him, "Are you a teacher of the law, and you don't understand about being born again?" Okay. That's what Pharisees were. Okay. They were experts on the law. Yeah. The Apostle Question. Paul describes himself as a Pharisee. That's right. Yeah. Question on the scribes. Yeah, he was from Benjamin. He was not a priest. Scribes then, were they aligned with either party? The Pharisees? They, they were both. Some, yeah, they were both. Scribes could be found in either group. The yes, Pharisees and the scribes so. did this. And here we've got the chief priests and the scribes. So it depends on just where like, they fell. Just, just like you have Ashkenazi and Sephardi. Sulfurine right now. Well, they are the ones that wrote the scrolls, right? Right. Yeah. That's why they were called lawyers. They were experts in the yes. law. So were they, they were to hold the chief priests accountable when something was related. Well, it's, first of all, it's not, not to diminish what the priests were doing. The priests were keeping the requirements for the, for, for the house of Aaron and for Levi. Yeah. But and there were that, some good ones. And, but that's not, that's, so when we say they weren't religious, they were, they were, they were political animals, though. I mean, that's, everything that they did was about... That's how they got their position. And many of them, most of them, were Sadducees as well, which means they didn't even believe in a world to come. What were they doing it for? You know, it was for about, it's for here and now. You know? It is for money. Money. Yeah, the, the, uh, right before the Master, um, we've got uh, the Maccabean Revolt, right? You're familiar with that. The Maccabees and Judah Maccabee and all that stuff. That's where the Herodians came from. That's when they took over the temple, they cleaned it out, they got it all set up, and that's where they got their power base. They were in charge of the temple from that point on. And when Rome came in, they sold out, and now, instead of the high priest going to his, the, the, the Kohen Gadol, going to his son, it was now being sold by Rome. Every year there's a different guy. You bet. That's why you've got Caiaphas and his father-in-law are both seeming to be high priests at the same time. That you could actually have the phrase, chief priests, plural, Anywhere in Scripture is remarkable. You can't have more than one. But, the, but now, now you got a team. Now you got a team up. <laughs> You're taking turns. Because I mean, it's of the bizarre. politicalism exactly. that's going exactly. on. Exactly. Good question. Does that help? Yes, sir. Thank Good. You. Enough, the Sadducees weren't really most of Israel's friends either. Yeah. They were the elite who were in, with, in it with Rome. Yeah. In the, general. The, the I mean, I'm saying all of them necessarily. But the yeah. hoity toity. Yeah. I think, that, I think the, the, the message you want to come away with here, um, other than the, perhaps the political or not apolitical affections of these groups, are it is not possible to talk about a single Judaism in that day, <laughs> nor is it possible to talk about a single group of Pharisees. It just didn't happen. That's like talking about a single group of Christians. Well, what do Christians believe? How can you answer that? You can't answer that. That's like saying, what do we believe? Well, like, what day is it? Wait. Now, are, we, yeah. are we separating milk and dairy? I mean, dairy? Are, are, are we, you know? Well, I, you know, and I think, I know I did, and I think probably most everybody, in, even in the church, you know, they, they think of Jews, and they think they're all religious. Or you know? they were all against the mass. Really? Well, yeah, both, probably. In which case we know neither is true. All of the first 3,000, and then later 5,000, that's a total of over 8,000 that came to the Master and believed in him and were baptized, went through the mikvah, were all orthodox, devout Jews. 
And to be fair, again, to the, we're going to come up to this in a second. You're not going to be fair to the Pharisees. No, 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 no. But thinking about the, the Jewish She's people, fair, you see. most people, uh, yeah, oh, 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 most people oh, tend oh. to see, and uh, sometimes when they're reading through the text, as though the people who waved their palms on Palm Sunday were then shouting, "Crucify him!" Like four days later. Right. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, of course. Passover was a time Fickle for pilgrimage Jews. from all over the world. You're talking about what the estimates something like a million Jews in Jerusalem or you know thousands upon thousands yeah. there's no way a all of them are on the Mount of Olives and B that all of them could have possibly packed into the the courtyard around or all Pilots. of them could possibly have believed exactly the same thing at any given time <laughs> so two the, rabbis three opinions there were more than enough of different groups who had their own reasons for either supporting Yeshua or opposing him so what you see is the ones on Palm Sunday quote-unquote are the ones who support him. They're his disciples. Maybe some of the Pharisees that have gotten in line with them, people who believe like him. Maybe it's just random people who say, that guy looks like the Messiah. I'm cool with that. That's true. Then we see a few days later, that's when you have the more corruptible, persuadable group that sees Yeshua as a threat to their way of life. And they're the ones who are chanting crucified. Well, they were already seeing him healing people. And there were thousands of multitudes that would follow him. They'd know he's going to be there. Let's go. You know, so it would make sense that it would be a huge group. All right, 14 Nissan, bottom of your second page, Tuesday night. And we have, uh, is Talmudim asked, where should we prepare the Passover with you? And... He sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover so that they may eat it. When evening came, Yeshua was reclining at the uh, table with his Talmudim. This is where he washes their feet. This is where we see the beautiful imagery that he uses. We won't go into it now, but just as I hope you saw in your own Seder, he took the cup after supper, the cup of redemption. That's the one that he said was his blood. He took the afikomen. He broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it. Also, I find it very curious that about two-thirds of the way down, Matthew 26, 29, in three of the Gospels, we have it very clear that the Master took a Nazarite vow, that he would not drink fruit of the vine again until he drank it anew with us in his Father's kingdom. The Talmud very clearly states that any man who says, I will not drink wine or I will not eat the fruit of the, the grape in any way, along with a timing marker, is taking a Nazarite vow. Um, yeah, I, I shared a little bit about this in our seders that we did this week because uh, we had several families that had never been to a seder before. You know, we have in the church the, this uh, concept of communion or Eucharist or the Lord's table or you know there's it goes by different names but communion communion is probably the most common name and of course we know that that was extracted from a passover seder a four-hour dinner uh, and it's interesting that yeshua said as often as you do this do it in remembrance of me well, what is the this the this is a passover seder that's right it's to be done once a year. And it's not a it's, it's not an indefinite pronoun reference. Right. Exactly. So, uh, it's interesting too. He says, uh, I won't drink it again until it has its fulfillment in it when the kingdom of God comes. Yeah. And he doesn't do away with it when it has its fulfillment. When the shadow Oh, oh that's um, good. He eats the substance of which it was 
telling off, but instead he keeps it. That's so great. <laughs> Did you see how you can use that when, when uh, the master says, "Don't think, that, don't even think that I can't abolish the law, but to fulfill it." And you know he's right. You've got an opportunity right there out of the Passover narrative to make it clear that he's going to do it again. That means the law hasn't been eliminated because it's been fulfilled, and grammatically abolished couldn't possibly be synonymous with fulfilled. Or you wouldn't have said it that way. Okay. Although, if you're talking to a Reconstructionist <laughs> Presbyterian, they'll go, "Oh, it's all fulfilled." Now. That's right. We're, we're in living the in the kingdom. We're in the kingdom now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Right. Yeah. All right. Here's the great one. Four lines from the bottom. I really hope not. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. How many of you are here for the shop read service this morning? When you did the Hallel, that's what they did. The Hallel is one thirteen through eighteen in the Psalms. And that is their hymn book. <coughs> After singing a hymn, they did not sing, Jesus, Jesus, how I love you. <laughs> that would have been awkward. It would have been, Jesus, Jesus. It's like, what does he do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's not what they did. They sang the hello. But like in the, but what's cool about that, though, I was pointing out this morning, look at read the hello. Even today, the passages they choose to repeat just stand out to me from the perspective of the it's master. Messianic. It's wow. talking about Purely blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's talking about the cornerstone that was, you know, the stone has been rejected, has been made the cornerstone. Over and over and over again, we see these messianic titles, imagery, psalm, prophecies that are even today being intentionally repeated, not just read, but they're selected out of the text as being repeated in That's today's right. service. And, and, and prophetic. I cut them down. I cut them down. I cut them down. I cut them down. <laughs> Well, and, and the thing that just it just gives me, me goosebumps every time I think about it is when you can, if you just put yourself there, right, and he's, he takes that last cup of Hallel, they sing the Hallel, they sing Psalm 118, which ends with, this is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. They drink the cup, they put it down, they walk out across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, and then a, just a few hours later, he's arrested. he's arrested, and through the night, he's he's brutalized and beaten. And he sat there just hours before and said, knowing that that was about to happen, this is the day that the Lord has made it. I will rejoice and be glad. Wow. That, that just... Yeah. That's encouraged. If you marinate on that, that, you know, that's just... If you don't get chill bumps, your bumper's broken. Right. Okay. You see that, what uh, Greg just went through at the bottom of the page. That's where Judas comes up. I think it's uh, noteworthy. And we forgot to mention it at our Seder this year. But, you know, oddly enough, this year, Passover was on a full moon. Oddly enough. <laughs> What's wrong with that statement? Always, always, always. By definition, it has to be on a full moon. And you can, you can demonstrate this to your friends in the visible church. If you read the narrative at the bottom of this page, you can see where they go down over the Kidron Valley. And then they go up to the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane. And as you read that in every Gospel account, there's not a single mention of a torch a lantern, or any type of flashlight, flashlight, anything like that. Why? Because it's a full moon. 
Now, the interesting part is, the interesting thing, yeah, no city lights. The interesting thing is that right after that, when Judas shows up with this army, this legion of guys from the chief priests, they've got court torches and stuff like that. They're bringing the torches. Almost like they were necessary for them, but it wasn't for the master's men and for the master to go down through the valley and all that because of the full moon. Jeanette Isabella, bring a torch. Okay. Tuesday night, all through the night, early Wednesday morning, we read on the last page, 14 Nissan Wednesday, this is the day of preparation for the Passover, the day before the Sabbath. What Sabbath? On your calendar, it's the 15th of Nisan, Thursday. It's the day before that, the Jewish day of preparation. These are all the phrases used in this, in this uh, portion. It says, early in the morning, Yeshua is led to the praetorium. Why didn't the Jews want to go inside? They'd be unclean. According to whom? What rabbinic According to the 18 measures. According to the house of Shemai. They would be unclean and could not eat the Passover. So they stay outside. He sends them to Herod, back to Pilate, king of the Jews. We've got the scourging, which, by the way, is not whipping. It is not whipping. A scourge is done with leather straps that have had pieces of broken glass and pottery glued to them. This is, uh, um, the idea is not to smack the person, but to have these leather straps grab hold of the flesh and then twist it slightly and pull. So it pulls off large pieces of meat. That's scourging. It is brutal. And most men would die if they got 40 like that. That's why the law said in Rome, you could only give a man 39. Not just lashes. You bet. I right. love the Romans. Oh, those Romans. They Got came it. with creative ways to kill Well, they, they, they actually came up with and created this whole crucifixion thing, mm -hmm. right? But Maximum amount of pain over yeah, the longest Over the longest amount of time. time. Yet, it was, I mean, if you, you remember our timeline, that's over here. Right before the Master's Day, they came up with this. Interestingly enough, King David prophesied in Psalm 22 all about it, almost a thousand years before it was even invented by the Romans. So I just want to say that I'm very gratified to be amongst the redemption of the Italians today. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after Passover, we'll go through Acts, and we get to Cornelius, and he was a leaf. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so we got the row. We've got him, the uh, pilots on the seat of judgment. Behold your king. So we've got now an unbelievable statement from the people. First, they begin with the lulav. Then they're coming to hear him teach. Then we've got the religious leaders giving him a stamp of approval and no longer questioning his, his kosherness as the lamb. And now we actually have the Roman government describing him not just as the lamb, but as the king of the Jews. It's an amazing thing. He's crucified at the third hour, which is roughly nine in the morning, but the third hour, whatever actual time it is, is when they start the, the sacrifice. The Tami, the first sacrifice of the day, continual sacrifice on every day, twice a day, the third hour and the ninth hour, roughly nine and three p.m. This is when he was put on the cross. Josephus tells us 
and we see in uh, Edersheim's book on the temple that there were so many people in Jerusalem that year they could not wait until 3 o'clock to start sacrificing the Passover lambs because they wouldn't have enough time. So they started three hours early. That puts it at 12, 12 o'clock. Son of a gun. That was when the sky was dark. And it stayed dark until 3 when they blew the shofar and did the second tamid uh, sacrifice for the day, the minka sacrifice. At the blowing of that shofar, the master heard it, lifted his head, and killed himself. He gave up his spirit right at that point. Unbelievable. The ninth hour, Yeshua breathed his last. Now, because it's the day of preparation, so the bodies do not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, a high day. What is the Sabbath that's a high day? Look at your calendar. It's the first day, right? It's Pesach, day one. It's the 15th of Nisan. So because they're not on the, they don't want them on the cross that day, they had their legs broken. They go to the first thief, break his legs. What happens when they break the leg? They can't, they can't, they can't push up, so they can take a breath, so they suffocate, and they die immediately. Within a minute, two minutes, the man is dead. This excruciating, long, and painful death stops. You go to the second one, they break his leg. You go to Yeshua, and amazingly, he's already dead. Well, he killed himself. Of course, he's already dead. He breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. So, they got to prove it. Sword up in the side. He is up in the air, by the way. It's not like this. This is a, this is a spear, right? It's long. It's like six feet long. And he goes like this. Boink. Comes up under the ribcage and punctures the pericardium, the sac around the heart. And out comes out not just water, I mean, not just blood, but water mixed with blood, which looks a lot like that red wine vinegar that we just had this past Passover. Man, was that cool. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Yosef of Arimathea came and asked Pilate for the body. Yosef and Nachtimon bound the body in linen, spice, uh, linen with spices. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, they laid Yeshua in the nearby tomb, and he put him in the tomb, and Yosef rolled a stone in front of it, a large stone. And the women saw how his body was laid. Now we have the Sabbath. It's not the weekly Sabbath. It's the high day. It is the first day. This is the day after the preparation. So this is the 15th of Nisan. It is Thursday. And it says, on the next day, in Matthew 27, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees asked Pilate to guard the tomb. That's when they put the guy there. The soldier. It's interesting. You see how the text says, on the next day, the day after the preparation. Would you? Is that, is that what you would call it? I'd call it the first day of unleavened bread. I'd call it Passover. But it's the next day, the day after the preparation. So there's no question about when this is. So now we have, as Joshua taught us, the Sabbath was over. Which Sabbath is over the next day? The high Sabbath. Mary and Mary bought bought, purchased spices to anoint him. Why didn't they buy him the day before? It's the Sabbath. Now we have another example where you can't do it. It's the master's body. That's important. But it's not more important than Shabbat. The woman returned in Luke 23 and prepared spices and perfumes, then rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Well, that's Mark 16 and Luke 23 apparently contradict. 
One says they got the spices and then rested on the Sabbath. The other one says they rested on the Sabbath and they got the spices. Well, if you look at the calendar, you got one day between two Sabbaths. One day, the 16th, is between both the Sabbath of the high Sabbath of the 15th of uh, Pesach and the weekly Sabbath on the 17th. All right, we're going to skip over Bikarim and bring Greg in in just a second on that as we finish up. Just uh, to go back to Please. that issue of the, the apparent contradiction, it's really interesting to me how, how difficult it is for tradition to die. And, and I remember as a kid, people talking about, you know, he may have died on Thursday. It's like, oh, well, that meant really, you know, or, you know, it's like instead of Friday, wow, that'd be like groundbreaking. Holy, yeah, yeah. You know, but I mean, the whole, the whole notion that the chronology of this week is born in that apparent contradiction. And anybody that knows anything, even a rudimentary understanding of the Torah, can be able to map this out on a calendar and go, that, that, that's the way it happened. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, but, and, they, and it's like, and we got a whole lot of people that are still convinced, you know, there's a Friday and Sunday thing I gotta get, I gotta and, stick and with. It's, and it's good Friday. Yeah. Because he was crucified on Friday. Well, every Friday is good. That's right. Then we got the weekly Shabbat. Nothing happens. Then at Havdalah. After the Sabbath, it began to dawn. Well, if we assume he, he rose at Havdalah. Then we have after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, while it's still dark, Mary and the other Mary come to look at the grave. In Luke, same thing, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. John 20, Mary stood outside the tomb weeping and saw two angels sitting in the tomb. Matthew 28, an angel had rolled away the stone, he's sitting on the stone. He instructs the women to tell his Talmudim he had risen. John 20, Yeshua instructs Mary to stop clinging to him. Why? For he has not yet ascended to the Father. And this is... Sunday morning. The women met Yeshua, took hold of his feet. They worshipped him. So we've got this uh, consistency here. And then Luke 24, we'll get to the road of Emmaus. Um, let, let me just finish this up because we'll, we'll finish that, the, the road to Emmaus real quick and, and be done with it. Um, if you look at your calendar on the 18th Sunday, early in the morning, the Master meets the women. At least Mary touches him. He says to at least Mary, don't do that. Don't touch me. Don't make me unclean. Don't mess this up. I haven't finished my work yet. I still have to ascend to my father. And Greg's going to get into that. But we notice then that right after that, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. What's the problem? From the scripture, there is a problem. If you don't see a problem in that verse, you don't know the Torah. I noticed that everybody brought unleavened stuff for Onan. I was taking bets somebody would mess up and bring, you know, battered something around. I almost sent an email out. Yeah. To remind her. How, how did you know that we would need unleavened stuff today? Because it's still Passover. Seven days. Passover seven days long. What does it say... Shouldn't they all be in Jerusalem? They should be in Jerusalem. This is a pilgrimage festival. They're supposed to be there for the whole week. Why are they leaving? 
What does the church say? They were discouraged. They were despondent and discouraged because the master had died, so they were gone home. <laughs> well, that's all well and good, but these are orthodox men. The only, the only reason they went up there in the first place is because they're devout. They're orthodox. They keep the commandments. Why are they leaving early? Oh, because Jesus finished it. Oh, that's, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Wow, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, that was good. To be fair, there's actually, I phrase again, there's actually an interesting commentary on the issue of pilgrimage festivals in that today or later on, the sages would look at this and they would argue that ultimately the only past the pilgrimage festival you had to stay for the entire festival was Sukkot. That actually during Pesach, you were allowed to, you, I think you had to be there for the day of Pesach, the first day, but then after that, you were allowed to leave early because you still had crops to deal with, you had other things to do. It's, it's actually that whole Beit Hillel, Beit Shemai thing. Yep. It was Shemai who said, hey guys, we're going to change things up a little bit. Hillel says you got to stay for the whole week. You don't have to stay for the whole week. Show up for the first day, and you're golden. Get your, get your ticket marked at the, <laughs> at the temple, at the and then you can go home. You're okay. So according to the prevailing halakha of the day, you could leave as long as you stayed for the first day. So after the Shabbat, can't travel on Shabbat, even Shammai can't change that. You know, after Shabbat, it's Sunday. So you've got folks that are listening to these guys and are going home. So Cleopas and his bud are on their way to Emmaus and somebody shows up. What's happening? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what just happened? Are you, what's wrong with you? Where have you been? You live in a cave? <laughs> what, have you been buried for three days? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if the lightning comes down, you just lean back. Um, so you know the story. He, beginning with, and again, I, I love this passage because it's what, it's what threw me into the Torah. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets. He described and showed them how the Messiah must suffer and die and three days later rise from the dead. And I couldn't do that from the prophets. Their hearts burned within them, they said. When he did the motzi, they realized who he was. Their eyes were opened and he's gone. Is that because he had a glorified body? He had the ability to do that before he was dead. He had the ability to do that. He had the ability to walk on water before he was raised. Don't let the church convince you that there was something special about his body. He made it clear. Same body. He didn't lie to them. He said, this is the same body. This is my body. Go ahead, touch it. Not I have flesh and blood, but I have flesh and bones that you can feel. Same body. Here, look. Holes in the hand. If this is different, by the way, this is the wrist, not the hand, right? It's not Catholic. Right. It had to be here or it would just rip right out. Okay? Mm-hmm. If, it were this, if it were a different body, and he pointed to, to what's known as the stigmata, his wounds, and claimed it was the same body and wasn't. Well, he's a liar. Well, that's not possible. Same body. Okay. I can't walk through walls when I resurrect? I'm so disappointed. Yeah, well, maybe you can. I don't know. My theory is that every family does hamotzi just a little. <laughs> and I think that they that's knew bad. the way their master said hamotzi. They heard that dude and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. That That's his too. That's that sounds right. like Greg Upham. We've been trying to do it that way without him and it doesn't work. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Okay. Now, there's a poignant 
spot. We just, uh, the men just uh, went through a, a letter that I received from uh, a man named Bill who was convinced in his Presbyterian way that the Lord rose on the first day of the week, met with the Emmaus guys on the first day of the week, met with all his Talmudim on the first day of the week, and then a week later, eight days later, met with his Talmudim and Thomas on the first day of the week. Well, I hate to disappoint him. Sounds like a reason to change the Sabbath. Well, that's what they're claiming, right? Right. We'll change the Sabbath to Sunday since the Master confirmed the first day of the week as a really hot day. Yeah. Okay, so the guys in, on the way to Emmaus. They claim that it's evening and that he should stay with them because now it's late. So they have a meal. They have the meal. And they realize who it is. And they go back to Jerusalem. I guarantee you it's dark when they got back. Now if it's dark on Sunday night, what day is it? Monday. It's not the first day of the week anymore, guys. Sorry. What do we have for the losers? The master shows up on Monday, the second day of the week. It could be Sunday night, but that's not the first day of the week. That's right. That's not the first day of the week. And then if you count from if you count from count from Monday with your finger from the nineteenth, count from Monday. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight days later, it says, the last verse I gave you, after eight days, Yeshua appears to his Talmudim, and Thomas is present. You count eight days, he shows up the, the next time on a Tuesday. So this whole first day of the week thing just doesn't cut it. So we're going to have church on either Sunday night or Tuesday night. Little close. I have a Wednesday night service. I, yeah, there you go. I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a comment. We've been thinking about it this year, going through all the times when it, when the when the apostolic scriptures actually talk about how many days it is. And it's like this is like this is like just a no brainer. If you're counting the Omer, you know exactly when it happens. Exactly. It's like he was raised in the third day. We know when it is. It's like the third day of the Omer. It's like and the eight you know eight days later. We know exactly when this is. You know we're counting the Omer. Exactly right. And if you look on the calendar, you'll see in the bottom right hand corner you'll see all of the Omer counting days. Today is day four of the Omer. Four days of the Omer. Alright? Now take a look on the 15th, 16th, and 17th there. And this is what Joshua Nunez taught us a couple weeks ago. That the Master made it clear that he would be in the grave. He would be in the heart of the earth just as Yonah, the prophet, was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Well, if you count it as evenings and mornings, as we see in Genesis, you'll see he was in the ground the eve Thursday evening, which is Tuesday night, and Thursday. Wednesday night. Yeah. Right. Thursday evening, which is Wednesday night. Yes. So you've got Thursday evening, Thursday. Friday evening, Friday, Saturday evening, Saturday, or Arab Shabbat and Shabbat. That's three days and three whole nights. And on day three of the Omer, he rose. Okay? My, my uh, New Testament commentary actually says that, that any time it says um, three days and three nights, the, the term 
three days or days and nights means it can it only has to be a part, a part of it. Yeah. You try to do it with it's like, yeah. oh, no. I mean, you're making to, this up while you go. I'm still trying to figure out how you come up with three nights. I can split into three days pretty easily, but there's no way to get three nights uh, the way the church does it on Friday. I love doing it's it with impossible. little kids. The, the, the way to teach it to the visible church is not to teach them is to go into a Sunday school class with like five and six-year-olds and say, okay, kids, let's count days here and nights here. Ready? And you kneel down in front of them. you got all the parents in the back. Okay, Friday, Friday night. Saturday, Saturday night. Sa okay, wait a minute. Friday. That's what you ended up with the parents. You're exactly right. Okay, now to tee this up for, for Greg Upham, so I can sit down here. Look at the calendar. You see on the 15th, Pesach, the master was on the 14th sacrificed with the lambs, with the Pesach lambs. Perfect. You see even before that, on the 11th of Nisan, he was selected and chosen and brought into the house as that Pesach lamb. He perfectly fulfilled that. We have feasts, four in the spring and three in the fall. And he literally fulfills them in his own body <laughs> down to the very jock and tip. Now, Paul says that Yeshua is the first fruits of those which have been raised from the dead. I believe that with all my heart. But first fruits is the 16th. And he didn't rise on the 16th Friday. He rose on Sunday. And that's a problem for me. But it's not a, a showstopper. Because I know that Paul said he was the first fruits, so that's good enough. He was first fruits. But Greg's got a burr under his saddle. Greg's like, no, no, it's got to be the day. It's got to be. He fulfilled it perfectly with all the other feasts. Why not this one? Let's have the theory. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Now, since everybody listening worldwide is going to want to hear this theory, you need to come sit in this chair in front of this mic and give us the theory. Rav Ufam. Ah. <laughs> we sit at your feet. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we we all probably have heard of the the controversy, right? Uh, Orthodox Judaism, uh, and and which of course Orthodox Judaism today uh, comes from Pharisaical Judaism. Then uh, they say that bickering first fruits. Uh, is on the day after the high Sabbath, okay? And I don't, I, I have no argument with that. <clears throat> uh, we know the Sadducees, the other primary group at that time, uh, which would be similar to the Karaites today, I guess, uh, they interpreted the, the scriptures from Leviticus 23 and I think also Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16 as the, the scripture that talks about um, uh, waving the, the the first fruits on the day on the morrow after the the Sabbath, 
Pharisees interpret that as the Sabbath being the high Sabbath. Sadducees interpret it as the, the morrow after the weekly Sabbath, which means if their interpretation is correct, then you would always do the waving on a Sunday. And Sunday would always be the first day of the counting of the Yom. Okay, so there's this there's been this controversy for centuries. There's a third group. The Essenes recounted the next Sunday. Yeah, so yeah, then the, the Essenes would wait until after the festival's over and do it after the, the following weekly Sabbath. So uh, lots of you know lots of different uh, different opinions to, to pick from. The premise that I work from is is not to say that this group is right, this group is wrong. My basic premise is if Yeshua is the Messiah, uh, and these festivals are all teaching us about Him and about the work that He was going to do, they're all prophetic of Him. Literally, uh, literal. So, just like as as Joe pointed out, just like we saw Him fulfill the um, the the uh, the Passover sacrifice, not just the spirit of it. No, no. He fulfilled it down to the exact detail. He was put on the cross at the time they're doing the, the morning sacrifice. He gave up the ghost at the time they're doing the final Pesach uh, offering in, in the afternoon. I mean, down to the every detail. You know, he went into the temple. He cleaned out the house just like you're supposed to for Pat. All of that we see that being fulfilled in his in, in his life. So. My, the, the, the basic presumption to this theory is just a theory. I'm not saying it, it is. Okay, I could be completely wrong. The, but the underlying we'll presumption that, that, I, that I'm <laughs> making is that why would we expect Yeshua to do anything less for for first fruits? Meaning, we should expect that the the first fruits was fulfilled down to the very detail in his. Uh, in this case, resurrection. Okay, so that's the premise. So if we agree with this chronology that he rose from the dead, uh, you know, at the end of the weekly Sabbath, as the as the uh, as the uh, what, you know, the, the next day, the first day of the week would be starting around the time of Havdalah. Lots of good reasons why that makes sense, uh, particularly if you understand the 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 the, the, the Havdalah ceremony. Right. Um, then the question is: uh, the, Is that telling us something about Bikurim, at least in that year? Okay, because if he is the first fruits, um, then again the premise is he is fulfilling the the detail. He's fulfilling that feast down to the detail, not just the spirit of it. Right? And it's the detail that he gave us in his word. Correct. Okay, so uh, we we had a pass we had a, a passage here uh, where um, on Sunday morning where the women go out before sun up, they go to the tomb, they see the tomb <coughs> empty, Yeshua appears to them, uh, and he, he says, Don't touch me, I have not yet ascended. Okay. Well to me that means if he has not yet ascended to the Father he has not yet completed whatever work it is that he is to accomplish. Okay, we know he's out of the grave. He appears to. Him. We know he's been resurrected. 
but he has not ascended, so don't touch me. Don't defile me, because I'm not yet done with whatever it is that I've got to do. Okay. That, that's Matthew 28.2 and Mark 16.7. It's almost dead middle on the 18 Nissan Sunday morning list of scriptures. So here's where, it, you know, as I've thought about this, I've, I've, I've tried to say, okay, I understand Orthodox is, the Orthodox understanding is, it is the day after the high Sabbath. Get that. And I'm not saying that it's not. How do we reconcile that with the presumption that Yeshua fulfilled it in its in its details, in his in his resurrection? The theory, and this is just a theory, so you know, I'm not saying this is is, is right. Uh, but my understanding, uh, and I'm still doing some study, and I'm still looking for a couple of resources uh, to help me flesh this out. But my understanding is, if you under, if you go back and and, and look at how they uh, performed the first fruits and the in the process and the ceremony that went with it, that they would before uh, Passover, meaning before the fifteenth of Nisan, before the High Sabbath. The, the priests would go out to a designated place, which I believe was either on or near the Mount of Olives, where they were growing barley that was specifically used for temple service. They would go out prior to Passover, identify uh, you know, the best crop growing, and they would tie off sheaves in the, while they're still in the ground before the festival. Okay, Then they, they sacrifice on the 14th, that evening begins the high Sabbath. They would, they would of course, keep the high Sabbath. Um, and then my understanding is that on the morning of the 16th, uh, early in the morning, they would go out to the field where they had already pre-identified and, and, and tied off the sheaves. The, the, a group of priests would go out with a cloud of witnesses, and they'd go out to this designated place the, you know, the priests would have their sickles. They'd have guys standing there with, with baskets. And they'd kind of go through this elaborate procedure where the priests would, you know, declare, with this sickle I will reap. And the crowd would say, amen, or yes, you know. And he would repeat, with this sickle I will reap. And they would do that three times. Again, it was to make sure that everybody understood, this is the first fruits, and I'm about to reap it, and you guys all agree this is the first fruits, right? So that we don't mess this up. <laughs> and and so they would have this 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 kind of elaborate uh, procedure uh, in the morning. They they would reap uh, the sheaves, put them in the baskets, schlep them back to the temple, where they would then begin this uh, laborious process of transforming raw. Uh, grain, stalks of grain into the finest quality flour to be used in the actual uh, waving in in the temple. Okay, so that would in, in require uh, threshing, winnowing, milling, uh, uh, sifting, and and uh, uh, parching, sifting. There's a whole process there, and and. They would go through. They would have. They actually had to go through this multiple times to get to a flower that was so fine that when a priest stuck his hand totally in the flower and pulled it out, it had to be so fine that it wouldn't even adhere to his hand. His hand had to be completely clean when it came out of the the flower. Okay, so I don't know how long that would take. 
but you know, absent all the modern you know machinery and technology we have, my my guess is you know that was a pretty lengthy process. That was a laborious process. I mean, threshing, grinding, you know, I mean, over and over again to get this 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 flour down to a fine, highest quality flour to be used to prepare matzah to be waved before the, the Lord. Okay, so the theory is this: we have we have two things that are interesting in this particular year. The first thing that's interesting is the 16th of Nisan falls on a Friday. Okay, well, we all know that Friday is also a preparation day. It is a preparation day for the weekly Sabbath. Okay. Uh, the other thing that was interesting this particular year, we know that, um, that when Yeshua was crucified, that there was a veil that was rent in the temple. Not sure which veil, you know. Uh, Christianity has always interpreted that to mean the, the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Of course, they fail to recognize that there's actually two veils <laughs> hanging there. There's also a veil that separates the court from the holy place. We don't really know which veil it was, but we know that one was rent asunder at the time of, um, of Yeshua's crucifixion. We could speculate that that may have caused some, also, some, some additional halakhic issues with respect to how they continue with carrying out their normal activities because if we don't have a veil, do we have to fix the veil before we can proceed? Blah blah blah. So, and, and I don't know what the answer to all that is, other than to say that it was unique. It was a unique occurrence in that year. But the the key thing to me though is, if the 16th of Nisan happened to that fell on a Friday, okay, so they go out early Friday morning, do this procedure, and they go back and they they're doing this process of, of milling down this flour. Could it be? that they didn't complete that before the weekly Sabbath began. And we know, we, we talked about this earlier already, that if they didn't get that done by the weekly Sabbath, they got to stop. They've got to stop, they've got to observe the weekly Sabbath, and then they would pick up that activity at the earliest Saturday night after, you know, after Hamdallah, okay? Um, so the theory, and again, this is just a theory, I'm not saying this is, could it be that in this particular year, uh, they did not get this, this process of, the, of the, the raw grain to fine flour completed before sundown Friday night, they stopped. That means they would have picked up after Shabbat, which means they probably would have done the wave offering at the earliest Saturday night, um, but more likely they would have done the wave offering in the temple sometime Sunday morning. Okay. If if that's true, if that's true, that would explain why Yeshua says, "Wait a minute! Don't touch me. I have not ascended to the Father because He arose from the dead." If he is the first fruits, he's got to present himself as the first fruits before the heavenly temple. Just like they have to wave the first fruits in the earthly temple. So 
it could be <coughs> that in this particular year, because of the day that that uh, the 16th fell on, also perhaps due to uh, the unique circumstances of the, of, the, of the veil being rent and, and, and so forth, it, it could be, as the theory goes, that in this particular year, they, that they being the Pharisees and the Sadducees, actually uh, observed Bikarim and did the wave offering on the same day, which would have been, in this case, Sunday. And it would have worked out, if this is true, that that is also when Yeshua, the first fruits of those resurrected from the dead, ascended to the Father, pre presented himself as the first fruits. And then we know he descended because he comes back down, he meets with the, the guys on the road to Emmaus, he meets with Thomas and the disciples several times, right? Because he's the one who ascends and descends, right? So that's no big deal. That's, that's clear in Scripture. So that is a theory. Again, the premise is Yeshua has to fulfill the details of the festivals just like he did you know, the Passover sacrifice. We should expect him to fulfill the details of Bikarim. We should expect him to fulfill the details of Shavuot. We should expect him to fulfill the details of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot because they are all teaching us about him. So, um, so if you buy that, then, then we're looking at how is his resurrection and the timing of his resurrection, resurrection how is that, uh, how do we correlate that to the ceremony at that time? That, that's the theory. Don't know. Where, where's the temple book? Over here. Let, yeah, let me, uh, he's not making it up. I mean, like you said, it's just a theory, but um, Alfred Edersheim is, is one of your... Uh, Temple scholars here. Great. With an Arugis wine room restaurant. <laughs> um, where did we? Uh, it was uh, one sixteen. Judas, darkness, Steve, here we go. Uh, <coughs> yeah, here's where the sickle and the, the, yeah, okay, okay. the basket and all that. Yeah. That's only going down. Yeah, here we go. The basket. Um, already on the 14th of Nisan, the spot whence the first chief was to be reaped had been marked out by delegates from the Sanhedrin. By tying together in bundles, like Greg just said, while still standing, the barley that was to be cut down. Though for obvious reasons it was customary to choose for this purpose the sheltered ashes valley across the Kedron, there was no restriction on that point, provided the barley had grown in an ordinary field, of course in Palestine itself, and not in garden or orchard land, and that the soil had not been manured nor yet artificially watered. When the time for cutting the sheaf had arrived, that is, on the evening of the 15th of Nisan, even though it were a Sabbath, he says, just as the sun went down, three men, each with a sickle and basket, formally set to work. But in order to clear, clearly to bring out all that was distinctive in the ceremony, remember his timing is based on the church, so forget the timing, just what they're going to do. They first asked of the bystanders three times each of these questions. Has the sun gone down? With this sickle? Into this basket? On the Sabbath? 
And lastly, shall I reap? Having each time been answered in the affirmative, they cut down barley to the amount of one ephah, or ten omers, or three sayas, which is equal to about 29 liters, that's seven gallons, five pints of U.S. measure. The ears were brought into the court of the temple and thrashed out with canes or stalks. I bet that takes a while. So as not to injure the corn, then parched on a pan perforated with holes, so that each grain might be touched by the fire and finally exposed to the wind. The corn thus prepared was ground in a barley mill, which left the holes whole. According to some, the flour was always successfully passed through 13 sieves, each closer than the other. The statement of arrival authority, however, seems more rational, that it was only done till the flour was sufficiently fine, which was ascertained by one of the gizbarim, the treasurers, plunging his hands into it, the sifting process being continued so long as any of the flour adheres to the hands. So there you go. So it did happen. It was a job. It did take some time. If it happens on a Friday, do we need to potentially wait until after Shabbat? If you also throw in the whole veil reparation, you know, I personally think everybody's busy with Passover, priests do their deal and are turning the stuff into fine flour. They run out of time. The guy's got to fix the the veil. He might have just finished up on Saturday night after Havdalah. Either way, there you are, Sunday morning, and you've got the two things happening at the same time. That work? I, I think it's far more commendable to try and, and resolve this issue this way as opposed to another way, which is simply to say, well, they don't know how to count. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, the rabbis always were messing things up, and they and they obviously weren't obeying God. It's very clear in Leviticus twenty three what they're supposed to do, and they have decided to to obscure and and occlude the resurrection of our Lord, and so they 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 count it wrong on purpose, uh, which then denies the fact that Acts chapter two happens on the very day, the fiftieth day after they miscounted the days. Right. So I mean it So we know, claim one but so God so so God actually honors that one but doesn't honor the other. I mean it, it it's in you know it, the whole issue of counting the omer is is uh somewhat uh divisive in messianic circles because a lot of messianics are anti rabbinic. Sure. And uh what they don't understand is to be anti rabbinic is to have a form of anti-Semitism. And, and uh, whether you agree with all the traditions or not, uh, we should be very careful to simply uh, uh, ascribe an evil motive to a tradition. Uh, and that is what they're doing, is they're saying, well, they're trying to cover up the resurrection. And so they, they change the way they count it. And, and this is a far more uh, agreeable way to try and resolve it. I think so. I, I, I also would, uh, would throw in uh, the, the concept that you hear from the naysayers outside the church that the Bible was changed. It removed all references to um, you know uh, reincarnation. How, how do you take references to reincarnation out of handwritten copies of the scripture throughout the Byzantine Empire? How does that happen? I mean, it, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's just like the rabbis deciding men who are absolutely scrupulous about the Torah would actually choose to do something different before they even realize what this whole Yeshua thing is going to be. It just doesn't make much sense. There was a comment here. 
Yeah, yes. A couple of questions. So in reality, they're waving a sheep, and they're um, and then there's the grain offering, which is the flour, which is the produce of the sheaves, right? And then um, well, are they waving? Saying, are they waving a sheaf? A sheaf, right? Or are oh, they oh. waving matzah? Well, the text says sheep. So what is what's, what's the actual Hebrew? The translation says sheep. So that I guess that's my first question. And then the other thing is that that from the produce of the flour they make the loaves, and it says with leaven. So then my next so question the loaves is, there, this is in Pesach. So the way they leaven, that, that that reference I think is the Shavuot. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually so two. There's two, two first, first fruits, and this is part of the complication in the passage in general is that. There's a first fruit for the, the barley, which happens in the spring, right. and there's a first fruit for wheat, 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 which is in which is why we read Ruth around Shavuot. But, uh, but there's an offering on either end. Yeah. You offer, start counting the over, and when you get to fifty, you do it again with That's a different right. crop. Exactly. But but my understanding is the barley. The offering oh, okay. for the barley the was matzah, but the offering for the first fruits from the wheat harvest were loaves. Big loaves. Yes. Yeah. That's the Shavuot. Yeah. Huge. Shavuot. Biggest people. And it actually says that's leavened, which is extremely unusual in the right. sacrificial system. It's very cool. Right. But just going back to okay. the, the, the idea of were the rabbis trying to conceal the resurrection? And, and to me... We were sitting around last night, and we're reading the Haftorah, which the Haftorah, as we read it this morning, is Ezekiel 37. And I and I read it, and I'm thinking, why did they pick Ezekiel 37 for the Haftorah portion on Shabbos Komoed? So back up. You got to tell people who weren't here, what in the world is Ezekiel 37 talking about? Okay, sorry. Ezekiel 37, for those who are not who don't know, is the uh, famous portion about the Valley of the Dry Bones and how the, uh, Hashem tells the prophet to prophesy to the dry bones and the, and they resurrect. So it's a it's a passage about resurrection. And <laughs> they blew it. Wait a minute. Who is it that told us to read that? Now the rabbis. The rabbis. And the rabbis picked that as the haftorah for Shabbat Kol Moed. Pesach. Which would be well, that's really convenient because we know it was Shabbat Komoed Pesach that the Master resurrected that night after Shabbat was ended. Right at, at yeah. the end of Shabbos Komoed. So, <laughs> so if they were trying to obscure, they didn't, they they really didn't do a really good job, job did they? Wow. Well, they wrote their whole sedur with those references. Or did they understand <laughs> that there was something about resurrection to be understood? Absolutely. Because of Bikarim. Absolutely. Amen. Amen. I, I heard, uh, I heard Greg's first thought that Bikarim might have moved that year, and I, I have to admit that my first reaction was, "Oh, come on." That one year they moved it. Come on. <laughs> well, then, you know, I, I I I noticed as I'm reading this year. Well, wait a minute. Ten Nissans when he's supposed to get those lambs. Oh, it was moved this year. Why? Because of the Sabbath. Wait a minute. The master's supposed to go down to Jerusalem on ten Nissan. Oh, he didn't go until eleven Nissan. Why? Because of the Sabbath. Bikarim should be on the 16th of Nisan that year. Maybe it got bumped. Why? Because of the Sabbath. That seems not just cool, 
but amazingly consistent. And using the actual work that needed to be done, I like it. I like it. By the way, I, from my understanding, is like 14 veils in the temple. So don't don't think it's just the one you thought was separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place. There's two, right? And there's one there. There's a lot more veils. So we got veils all over the place. Yes, sir. When did the celebrating after the Yom Tov, counting the Omer from there, trumped the other two views? Or when when did that get more officially established at the, the destruction, destruction of the temple? temple? It was already in practice before that. And actually, um, uh, Josephus and Philo both record the 16th as the day of the beginning of the counting of the Omer. But because Pharisaic Judaism survived because of Yochanan ben Zakkai. And, and the Sadducees yeah, set, yeah. focused with the temple. The right. temple's gone. They gone. didn't survive. Yeah, so Pharisaic Judaism is rabbinic Judaism. So. Yeah. And the Essenes, going with a week after Pesach, um, these guys were in the desert. They didn't last. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't because they were in the desert. Well, they kind of had a Roman army. Kinda. Of, course they, of course, they saved a lot of scripture. Yeah. That's true. Well, and, and the only reason why I'm asking is that because this next week, interestingly enough, as everything reminds us of Messiah Yeshua, um, it's interesting that this past reading didn't include the readings on the first fruits of that we read about in Leviticus 23, and it's actually next week, which starts which includes Sunday, right, which includes the end of this day. And the only reason why I'm bringing this up is because I have been studying Leviticus more closely, 23, even though it's for next week, <laughs> um, simply because of the wording. There, there's a reason why there was three different opinions. Sure. And I think we have to be oh, yeah. very cautious oh, yeah. not to just throw out things as Rick was just talking about um, because we're biased towards one thing or another thing. But it's a very interesting wording. And so I, I was wondering that because there is, in my opinion, as I look at the wording of how they say seven weeks, okay? Now, if on verse 15 of Leviticus 23, it says that we're supposed to, on the morrow of the rest day, start the count, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it also says that on the morrow of the rest day makes day 50, same wording. When it says to count for yourself seven Sevens. weeks, it actually says seven Sabbaths. The wording. Same wording on the first one and on the last one. Yeah, it's the same word for seven. Seven Sabbaths. Yeah, in the first century they would have said, regardless, in the year, the year 300 or 250 when the Septuagint was written, the Septuagint, the Greek version, makes it very clear it's the, it's the fair segue. Because it makes it very clear that the counting is not from Sunday to Sunday, but from the day after Passover until 50 days later. So, I mean, that's, so the Septuagint would be 300 years, before, about 300 years before, before, the, before the Pharisees really were reached their yeah. peak or whatever. The uh, Joshua 5 is where they nailed it. That's, that's where the Pharisees got their, their thing from. In Joshua 5, it says that. They got manna every day until they took the from fruit the from the land. They waved it, did that first fruit offering, and the next day they didn't get any more manna. And they did that, according to Joshua 5, the day after the 15th, Pesach. If you look at the calendar, 
the, the three primary positions were the 16th, which is Friday, the 18th, that's the Pharisaic, the 18th, which is the Sadducees, and the 25th, which is the Essenes. And then there was another one that was also done, and I can't even remember, that one was so bizarre, it's just hard to even count. I think it was like, I don't, I don't know. Well, and, and the reason why I bring this up is because if we're not sure, like, of what you were just saying, and we're just reading what it is, it can be very, like, sure. so how do we capsulate that, that, that? And I think that's why these discussions are so healthy. You because we need to understand why the decisions are being made to count. You know, when you have three different views, and one is a little out there, and they were lived kind of out there anyway, <laughs> and two of them are, okay, where are you coming from? True. But you have things like what you're just saying about uh, 300 years prior already in Greek is being clarified as to what it's referring to as helpful information. So that's just for everyone here who comes in contact yeah. with these different views um, to, to, to take your time and make sure you pick up all the pieces before just concluding and say, okay, this is, you know, away because of this bias, but do it more because of fact. Do it more because of evidence that line up with unity with Israel and unity with scripture as well. We have, we have a tendency because most people in Messianic Judaism come from Protestant backgrounds. We have a tendency to Protest. approach scripture as a, well, protesters, approach scripture as sola scriptura, that it is scripture alone that, that, that defines what we, what we do and, and how we live. And, and so we read Leviticus 23, the literal, there's no question, the literal reading sounds very clear In that we're supposed to go to the both Scythian uh, view and uh, the Sadducean view, and we're supposed to start counting on Sunday. There's just no That's question. Right. Um, and, and unfortunately, then when you read, like say, Joshua chapter 5 and go, well, wait a minute, they didn't do that though. Unless it was, unless the, uh, it, there's the option that maybe possibly the Passover that year was actually on the Shabbat which the scripture doesn't say, but then manna doesn't fall on the Shabbat. So the manna would have ended not on the day that, that they stopped, uh, that they <laughs> gave first fruits, but the day before, <laughs> in the two days before, Friday, right? So, I mean, so if you, if you carefully read that, then you gotta go, well, you know, there's just really no option other than the fact that the Israelites did it wrong in Joshua chapter five, <laughs> if I read the literal text. Yeah. I think that the, the, one of the, um, the easiest ways for me to look at it um, of course, is, is, is to follow what Rick does. So, <laughs> no, no, no. So I, Israel, well, I do it. Israel, so, do what Israel. So, so I followed what Rick did, and and the next year I I I decided I think he's wrong. I, I read Leviticus twenty three, and I decided it was it was Sunday. Actually, that's not true. He did. He decided it was it was Sunday. I've changed. So okay. I'm working out in the Omer. And he's sending out little notes to him, and we're getting the numbers are wrong. And I'm like, what's up with that? So Get I together. Like, this he goes, no, 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 it's, it's got to count from Sunday. It was the day of the day. Uh, so I'm reading, you know, well, yeah, I guess I could be, well, yeah, sounds good, all right. So the following year, we did it that way. He changed it. <laughs> he changed it. He changed doing it to Pharisees. But wait, which wait. illustrates the whole point that everybody's supposed to be doing it on the same day. That's Amen. Right. And, that, and that was the beauty of it was regardless of what I think, what is greater Israel doing? 
And then I realized that greater Israel has been doing what the rabbis have been doing all the way down to the, to the time of the master. Well, then Tim Head comes out with this Joshua 5 bombshell, and it's like, well, gosh, of course, okay, so it's, a, it's the 16th. Now I figure, okay, we're all done. Well, then Greg Upham. And then Greg Upham. Yeah. <laughs> and he makes clear. And I'm not saying it's not the same. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is before. Greg Upham shows up with the phrase that slam dunks it all. Don't you want to do what the master did? <laughs> and we look back, and sure enough, the master followed greater Israel and what the temple system was doing, which was the Pharisaic method. So you can follow Tim, you can follow Rick, you can follow the Pharisees, or you can listen to Greg, or you can read the scriptures yourself, but the bottom line is they were to bring God's people together at one time. His people as a whole were to appear before him at one time, and they would do what he said to do, and then they'd go back home. And now... As long as we're following greater Israel, I'm okay with that. I like this. In that one year, maybe something or a couple of things came together to push it. And that would be very, very cool. I do want to point out that that calendar, by the way, according to the Talmud, according to Chazal, the calendar in the year of the Master is the same calendar at the very first Passover. It was like that. Shabbat Hagadol was on 10 Nisan. Very cool. And I just, yeah. I mean, it's like that. He made it work. Yeah. Yes, sir. You're first in you. Um, just to go back again to the issue of reading the English, which is a translation of Hebrew by itself, but that also doesn't always capture all of the nuances of Hebrew. One of the things that I've noticed more recently in studying some of Chazal is, to my surprise, that even if a Hebrew word looks obvious to me, it doesn't necessarily mean it has a straight translation. Their Hebrew words missing letters, they have or they have multiple meanings. You know? Okay, so this word looks like it always means that to me, but then I find out that well the the sages said that technically that word doesn't always mean that, it can also mean this. And then they give you examples. Yeah, and you're then like, you're like, Oh wait, oh. I didn't know that was there. So not to challenge people in a, in a negative way, and not to say that the, the certainly not to say the sages are always correct, but if I'm having a question about how to read Hebrew, I'm going to assume <laughs> that the people I know better. I'm going to assume that the people who have been speaking and reading Hebrew for 5,000 years more or less, probably 4,000 years, I guess, probably know it better than I do. Or well, maybe the ones who actually were <laughs> writing it so that we'd actually have a copy. Mm, just a thought. Yes. Deuteronomy uh, 16. And that's um, what is unique about Deuteronomy 16. Leviticus 23 is the only book, chapter in the Bible that has all the feasts, which begin with Shabbat. Deuteronomy 16 gives us the three pilgrimage feasts. That's why when somebody says, "Are there three feasts or seven feasts?" What's yes. the answer? Yes. 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 <laughs> and it's a great uh, way to to take the journey. And when you have a question, okay, what does this mean? Um, do everything that we've been talking about, but also say, okay, where is a passage that talks about this too? And interestingly enough, in Deuteronomy 16, the word seven Sabbaths doesn't appear, which I think is a good way to clarify this. It actually says seven weeks. 
Mm. Seven, um, seven. Right, seven. seven. Yeah. And, well, Shavua now it says, yeah. right? Yeah, actually seven, seven weeks. Later. Seven weeks in Deuteronomy. It says seven sevens in uh, Leviticus, Leviticus which cannot be understood seven. as seven Sabbaths. But then what is it? Is it seven sevens or is it seven Sabbaths? Because seven Sabbaths is a really long time. Right. Well, it could be. <laughs> it could be. It could, yeah. And so then the question is, well, which one is it? And I think that's what's good about looking at Leviticus 16 is that the word Sabbath after seven isn't even mentioned, but it's seven weeks, which then goes to clarify, so where are you going to fall into agreement? Exactly. And it sounds like going into agreement <laughs> with counting from what is set today and what was set way back by Joshua 5 um, seems to go more consistent with what 16. the scripture is teaching, which is a day after the Yom Tov uh, Sabbath. Yeah. So. Cool. Good to good. Other comments? Yes. Sir? Is it wine time? It is wine time. It is wine time. <laughs> Can I just interject one thing? Yes. I'm sorry. Just that going through this, it's given additional emphasis on Shabbat and how we really should align with observing Shabbat, irregardless of what we understand or know or don't understand. Well, you can't keep the feasts if you don't know how to keep Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Leviticus 23 starts with Shabbat. If you don't know that, when it says, it shall be a Shabbat for you, the 15th of Nisan, what does that mean? What are you going to do? And that kind of thing. To that point, one of the things that jumped out to me the most when even studying the whole sign of Yemen is how even the women who had bought and prepared the different things rested on the weekly Shabbat yeah. as was commanded by Rosh Hashanah. And you could have said, well, you know what? That would have been the perfect time. Yeah. I mean, come on. This is Messiah himself. I mean, he is ultimately our spiritual rest. And, you know, do all these interesting uh, justifications. Gymnastics. <laughs> um, or simply realize, like, because it is Messiah and because Sabbath points to Messiah, Therefore, we honor and respect and take upon us to take that sign, which is also Sabbath, um, um, and, and rest, as he did, and all of us should. Mm -hmm. um, and the women I, really I, represent that I think well. to your point, if you just look at the calendar one more time, one last thing, and count how many times things got bumped for Shabbat. You've got the choosing of the lambs. You've got the travel to Jerusalem. You then have potentially Bikarim. And you definitely have the women for the spices. And maybe the master's own propitiation on our behalf as the first fruits. At least four or five times Shabbat is imposed on this text. And if we're not keeping it, or we don't even know what it is, or we're looking at the first day of the week, or whatever it is, we're losing stuff. All right, pray with me. Avina Mokino, our father and our king. We are in awe of you. You are an awesome God. And if even the small things which we have noticed this year about your intricate weaving of calendars and dates and matching up the Exodus with your son's yard site, if even a small portion of it turns out to be true, it is a wonderful thing in our eyes what you have done for our salvation. We pray that your son would 
come soon and in our days and all God's people said. Amen. 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 Amen.